There is nothing we should be quite so grateful for as the last line of a poem that goes, when your own heart asks, be resolved, young samurai, and tell the world what you witness here today. The history of Rokugan begins with the kami, the sons, and daughters of the heavens. Does that mean anything to you? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty on the nose, right? It does, yeah. The, the entire history of Rokugan begins with celestial entities falling from the sky and choosing to empower humans. Why humans, though? Humans are the worst kinds of people. Well, it's something that we'll end up touching on. Fair enough. But there's the, the rise and fall of many of the non-human civilizations in the time when all of the kami are fighting up in the celestial heavens. And by the time that they come to Earth, humans have existed for like maybe a hundred years or so. So young, so brave. So young, so brave. <laughs> so fresh. <laughs> Welcome to our second episode explaining Legend of the Five Rings on the It's a Mimic channel. I'm Megan and with me again is Roman. In this episode, we're going to be looking at what makes the Emerald Empire so distinct, the life of a samurai and the celestial order in the land of Rokugan. Rokugan is a unique setting, bound by honor and tradition. So Roman, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of the Emerald Empire? Okay, so we're going to start with a bit of the prehistory of the Empire, and then we're going to work our way towards the most important things that have sort of shaped the history of the Empire, mm -hmm. and in the end... Uh, we're going to probably finish at where the true canon of the fourth edition takes over and starts. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So, in the beginning, there was the nothing that existed before everything. At some point during its timeless existence, the nothing realizes it's alone and feels fear, creating the first third of the universe. This, in turn, created a sense of loneliness and a desire for companionship in the nothing, which creates the second third of the universe. Once it realizes what's occurred... The nothing experiences regret and wishes to undo all the things that it's made, but in doing so, creates the final portion of the universe, completing it and ending the nothing's existence. This marked the birth of the first three sins. Hmm. So the sins of the samurai are fear, desire, and regret. Yeah. All three things that prevent you from serving your lord properly. Mm -hmm. Also, I love that we call this sad, like, sadness, sam sadness samurai simulator or whatever. Samurai sadness thank you. simulator. Thank you very much. This is going to be a really good day. Uh, <laughs> and, like, it just birthed from, I am lonely and I am sad. <laughs> yep. It's, uh, it all comes together in a, in a pretty interesting way. From the beginning. From the sadness comes the more sadness. More sadness. The newly made universe was chaotic and formless, but slowly, the primal elements of creation seeped through the empty universe and pooled, with the heaviest sinking to the bottom and creating different layers of reality. Highest was the celestial heavens, below which were the mortal realm and the various other spirit realms, and finally at the bottom was Jigoku, the realm of evil. From this formless chaos came three nameless gods who looked upon the mortal realm and realized that it must be given purpose, which was beyond their means, and so they sacrificed themselves to birth the sun goddess and the moon god. Lady Sun and Lord Moon looked upon the mortal world and were perplexed by its formlessness. Ultimately, they realized that they could only give form to what existed there by giving names to all things that could be found in the mortal realm. They entered the mortal realm and named it, and in doing so, they created names for themselves. Lady Sun became Amaterasu, 
and Lord Moon became Onatongu, and they began to name everything within creation. I just like the imagery of them sitting there and just naming things and then fighting about it. <laughs> you know, the thing is, at first, they didn't have any disagreements. Yeah. In fact, like, Lord Onatongu was so taken by Lady Moon that he chose to pursue her and, mm -hmm. like, to do everything in his power to try and woo her, which eventually led to the birth of their ten children. The original Kami. Uh, Hante, Hida, Doji, Togashi, Okoto, Shiba, Bayushi, Shinjo, Fulang, and Ryoshin. However, Lord Moon, fearing that his children would become strong enough to usurp him, decided that they all needed to die, and consumed them one by one. <laughs> save Hante, who was saved by his mother, and, with her help, defeated his father and saved most of his siblings. Except for Ryoshin, who, because he was the first one consumed, died in his father's stomach. The other nine were all cast to earth once they were cut out, including Hante, who was dragged there by their brother Fulang. So is there, is there a reason why he would not have wanted to go? Hante? Yeah. I mean, to remain in the celestial heavens, right? I guess so. I won't want to be on Earth. I want to be where the pretty people are. <laughs> I want to be where everything is kind of nice, and then... I guess have to deal with my dad being upset with me because cutting open his dad's guts didn't even kill Lord Onitsongu. Yeah. All it did was just free his siblings. But, you know, they were all cast to earth. Mm -hmm. um, when Fulang fell, he hit the planet so hard that he punctured away towards the realm of evil and he becomes a big issue much later on. But all of his siblings just assume he dies. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, well, this sucks. Ryoshin's dead. Fulang's dead. We're not going to talk about them. We're just going to do what we can to try and survive in the mortal realm. And, um, you know, that'll be that. Mm -hmm. After Lady Sun and Lord Moon named the world, thousands of years passed as they pursued one another and gave birth to their children. But during that time, the mortal realm was not idle. Many races were born, rose to prominence, and faded into obscurity long before mankind walked the world. So... All of the non-human races, um, the Zokujin, which are like a lizard folk, the Kenku, who are a bird folk, the Nezumi, who are a rat folk, the Naga, who are a snake folk, and the Kitsu, who are a lion folk, all lived and became extinct within the thousands of years of Lady Sun and Lord Moon's courtship, and then the falling of their children to the earth. Okay. The tears of Lady Sun and the blood of Lord Moon are what gave rise to humanity who spread quickly across the face of the lands known as Rokugan. Although this should have occurred simultaneously with the fall of the Kami, it is commonly believed that at least a century passed after mankind first appeared before the Kami descended to the mortal realm. In that time, humanity scattered across the land, forming many tribes, villages, and groups. Among the most prominent was the tribe of Izawa, named after their leader, the most powerful spellcaster known to exist in the mortal realm. It was into this environment that the Kami descended. When they arrived... They believed their brothers Fulang and Ryoshin were dead, therefore chose not to speak of their fallen siblings out of respect. But the children of Sun and Moon wandered the world, interacting with mankind before returning to speak with one another. It was unanimously agreed that mankind should be protected and guided. The only question that remained was who among the Kami should lead them. Many of them believed they were best suited to the role, and ultimately a tournament was held at the site of their arrival in the mortal realm. In the end, Hante defeated his brother Okoto and became the first emperor of Rokugan. At their emperor's command, the other seven kami set forth to gather followers to their banners and to pacify the land in the name of the Hante. Thus, the great clans of Rokugan were born. The stalwart Hida forged the crab clan. The delicate Lady Doji breathed life into the crane. The enigmatic Togashi and his followers became the dragon. 
The militant Okoto gathered to his banner the lion. The humble Sheba created the scholarly phoenix. The manipulative Bayushi crafted the scorpion in the shadows. And the compassionate Shinjo created the Kirin, later known as the unicorn. So that's the creation myth of, mm-hmm. of Rokugan. A lot of the prehistory, a lot of the things that like give us our building blocks and our foundation for everything that happens next. <laughs> The other 700 timelines. Well, the first 100 years of the true timeline Mm -hmm. are not super busy, but a couple of big things happen. Fulang shows up with all of the baddies of the Shadowlands, which includes evil spirits, goblins, Oni, and he tells his siblings, hey, you fuckers forgot about me. It's time to die. (laughs) Um... And everybody starts to freak out because nobody believes that they have any way of challenging their brother empowered by the realm of evil. And it's at this point that a monk, later known as Shinsei, arrives. And Shinsei goes to the kami and is like, hey, you guys don't think you can do it, but fortune favors the mortal man. So find people. Pick people to go and challenge your brother because they will succeed. This led to something known as the first day of thunder. It was a you know, near apocalypse event for the Empire. Yeah. Where the chosen of all of the clans went and fought against Fulang. Yeah. And they won. Strangely enough, they won. And each of those families, well, sorry, each of those samurai, rather, were gifted families in exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you will often see that referenced as a marker of time. Yes. On a regular basis. There is the first day of thunder and the second day of thunder. And yeah. those give you a pretty accurate depiction of when things happened in relation to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Fu Lang's soul was sealed into 12 magical scrolls, known as the Black Scrolls, and he was banished from the mortal realm. Uh, Shosuro, who was the Scorpion Clan Thunder, returned to Rokugan with the Black Scrolls, which Hante entrusted to the Scorpion Clan. This is very important. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next thousand years, there's a lot of shit that happens. Yeah. Um, so during the next thousand years uh the last of the kami leave ningendo uh because they were in the mortal realm they were either mortal and therefore killed or they returned to the celestial heavens and were again absent from the mortal realm so this was a big shock to a lot of the samurai of rokugan who for most of their existence had been guided by a celestial figure now instead of having gods living among them they had to simply acknowledge that the gods were up above them Mm -hmm. Uh, there was an event known as the Gazoku ex- Conspiracy, where the Crane, the Scorpion, and the Phoenix each had members that decided, hey, we are going to try and guide the course of the Empire, and we don't really think that the Emperor in power at this time should be calling the shots. That created a big issue as they tried to consolidate power and pull it away from the throne. Eventually, the conspiracy was brought down, but it created one of those first rifts and one of the first big conflicts in the Empire where people had to decide if they were going to side with their immediate superiors or if they were going to remain true to the Emperor. Mm. Uh, there was an invasion by uh, the Marinese, who yeah. were a foreign power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have, you have, you're a big fan of the Marinese, huh? Yeah, secrets re- revealed. <laughs> <laughs> um and that invasion by the Marinese led to something known as the Battle of White Stag, which was the first 
instance of gunpowder being used in Rokugan, mm-hmm. and it led to the death of an empress, uh, Lady Yugozuhime. And so her son decided there's going to be a ban on all things Gaijin. No so more guns. No, no, not just no more guns. <laughs> no more guns, no more Gaijin product, no, like, nothing. We, we dislike Gaijin things. It's gone. Now, another thing that happened in the 11th century, actually right after the defeating of Fuleng, was that the unicorn left the empire. Uh, they were tasked with going and searching the realms outside of the empire to see what was out there to see what threats existed and to try and bring back information to help uh, the Empire at large. They got lost, and we don't see them for, I think, about 600 years when they come back largely changed by all of the things outside of the Empire, Mm -hmm. but also retaining the core values of being samurai. But that creates a huge rift and a huge headache within the Empire. That's pretty cool. Uh, after the Battle of White Stag, there's the rise of the Bloodspeaker. So, in Rokugan, there are two kinds of magic. There is the proper, totally acceptable, we speak to elemental spirits and we ask them nicely and they do things for us. And then there is the decidedly evil magic, where you pay them in blood. Hence, Bloodspeakers. The first Bloodspeaker, Yuchiban, was a big issue for the Empire because he was able to raise undead. And up until that point, funeral rights within Rokugan did not include burning bodies. Yeah. So it was just, oh, look at all of this raw material that I have to wreak havoc with. Yeah, look at all these awesome bodies that I can utilize to yep. destroy lives. So uh, Iuchiban was a big issue. Another big issue was uh, Hante the 16th, mm. because he was the first emperor who was genuinely... Not a good guy. He was a torturer. Great. He named people to being fortunes of things like dung and um, garbage. So a fortune is like a minor god. Yeah. But you are elevated to fortunehood typically by an emperor. And it's supposed to be an honor. So somebody could become the fortune of steel because they are a phenomenal smith. Or someone could become the fortune of ink because they're a wonderful writer. And these are honors. Being made the fortune of dung means that that is what your name will be remembered for for the rest of eternity by imperial law. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So the Steel Chrysanthemum had a horrible reign and was a miserable tyrant and was only really ousted when he publicly murdered his mother in court. And that... Wow. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So both of these things, both the rise and the, the fall of Yuchiban and the rise and the fall of the Steel Chrysanthemum showed people that divine power, when not wielded properly, becomes dangerous. I like how that was the first time that it occurred in this empire, after how many years? But like, I think it's in the early 10th century yeah. that it happens. So they went a long time without having a tyrant of, a, of an emperor slash leader. Yep. The... The social structure of Rokugan and a lot of those core values in Rokugan make it harder for samurai and for people to sort of stray off the path of being decent. But yeah. it happens. It happens all the it time. It does, but you know, not necessarily, to your point, like is someone that high ranking, shall we say. Well, yeah, but... the, the expectation of the emperor is that they are a, a paragon mm-hmm. of all of these virtues and that they are somebody worth serving. Mm-hmm. But as evidenced by history... It's not always the case. Not so much. In the late period of those 11 centuries, an Oni lord known as the Maw attacks from the south. Mm -hmm. And 
it is one of the first truly overwhelming things to happen to the Empire, where they're like, these are more Oni and Demon that we've dealt with in a very long time. We don't know how to deal with this. And there is a, I believe, a crab Shugenja, a, a priest, a, a sorceress, who makes use of a remarkably powerful prayer to the spirits and holds off these Oni long enough for the crab to build the Great Carpenter Wall. So it is a wall that spans most of the southern region of Rokugan, okay. kind of like the Great Wall of China. And the crab defend that wall to this day. Hmm. But her sacrifice is what allowed them the time in order to protect the Empire at large. Yeah. This happens almost immediately before the return of the Unicorn Clan. Okay. So, so they come back to the wall having been built. They come back and they're like, huh, there's this giant wall here. You guys should let us in. And that creates big strife between the Unicorn and the crab. Okay, got you. Eventually they are let in because they are recognized as being samurai, however far removed. But the return of the unicorn to the Empire, especially after all of the xenophobia that has been created around Gaijin, mm -hmm. it creates a lot of conflict for generations. It settles out towards, you know, when most people sit into the canon, but there are still certain things that the unicorn do that most of the other clans of the Empire do not. Mm -hmm. We now enter the 12th century. And this is when things probably pop off the hardest. It's my favorite. <laughs> all of these things that we have talked about happened over, like, the better part of a thousand years. Yeah. Right? This all happens in 100 years. <laughs> what is life expectancy of a samurai before we get too far into that? It's like, it's not necessarily to be aged out to a certain... If you're lucky, you live to 30. Yeah. If you live to 50, you're old. Yeah, you did it. You done did it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're a warrior. Yeah. Like, if you're a if you're a courtier, if you're a diplomat, if you're a Shugenja, you might live to retirement. Yeah. Like, but, I mean, we've played a couple of characters that were, like, super up there in age, and Shugenjas that are super up there in age, but... If you're a Bushi and you live to old age, you probably did it wrong. Yeah, you're not doing your job right. <laughs> <laughs> dishonor on you, dishonor on your house, <laughs> dishonor on your cow. <laughs> The 12th century, uh, you guys remember when we were talking about the Scorpion Clan, how they were gifted the Black Scrolls. Mm -hmm. Scorpion Clan champion opens the Black Scroll yeah. and decides that he is going to murder the Emperor of Rokugan because the Black Scroll gives him this vision that tells him that the bloodline of Hante is corrupt and it will lead to the downfall of the Empire. Mm -hmm. So when he goes and he murders Hante the 38th at his birthday. Good. On his name day. On his name day. <laughs> no less. However, his son, Haunte the 39th, escapes mm. and later becomes possessed by the spirit of Fu Lang. Dope. Uh, terrible. Absolutely horrible. No, great. This kicks off a thing known as the Clan War. Yeah. And it is exactly what it sounds like. Uh -huh. All of the clans actively at war within the Empire, deciding who is going to support the Emperor, be they old or new, who is going to support the Scorpion, be they old or new, from all of this turmoil comes the second day of thunder and the rise of both the mantis clan as well as many minor clans mm -hmm. once all of this is said and done okoto tuturi who is the lion clan thunder ends up being elevated to being emperor of rokugan and he starts the toturi dynasty he is toturi the first his eventual death leads to what is known as the four winds era where all four of his children are in contention for the throne 
there are a bunch of things that happened, but the end result of it being that um, his daughter sacrifices herself for the sake of the Empire, mm-hmm. and his, I believe his third-born son, Naseru, decides that she was Toturi the second, and that he will be Toturi the third. And his other children are like, yep, this is a good idea. Sure. We agree. <laughs> we'll honor our sister, and we will honor our new emperor. Mm-hmm. This then leads to the return of Ayuchiban and his defeat as the Empire decides that they are going to ally themselves with one of the big bads, a man known as Daigotsu. He is his own story that we will get into when we speak about the Spider-Clan, but Daigotsu was one of the biggest bads that the Empire had seen, and it is the first time that the Imperials decide to make a deal with the Devil. They defeat Ichiban, and shortly after his defeat, Toturi III dies, which again creates a war in, em- in the Empire. Because there is a war of succession. There is no heir for Nisseru. There is no living relative who can step up and become emperor. And so there is a race for the throne. All of the clans once again vying for that position of becoming the emperor. And in the end, Kitsuki Iweko, a member of the dragon clan, is elevated to become Iweko I, the empress. And that is where a lot of the fourth edition lore and canon really starts to kick off. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, uh, my attempt at an abbreviated history of all the stuff that like exists no matter how you play the game. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> it can, like it is and it can be, but like sometimes I think about how much lore exists within our D&D world and how much research we do for fifth edition. There's a lot out there. When it comes to D&D, a lot of the worlds are separated, right? There's different planes or different lands. There's different things. So like a lot of the lore and history of D&D can be hyper-focused into one area. It's very short. Yeah. But when it comes to L5R and the history of, you know, Rokugan, how it was developed, it's all the same. And then it's just how you as a GM or a storyteller decide to utilize that information to tell a story of one place or XYZ within the Empire or whatever you want to do. Yeah. How much do you want to zoom in? How much do you want to zoom out? Exactly. Because you can play over the course of hundreds of years or you can play over the course of 50 years. And depending on which level of scope you would like to play in, it's going to vastly change your play experience. Yeah, and like, I remember a piece of advice that you gave us when we were doing a court game, which was only going to take over the course of like three days. And it was a court between very specific clans, and then all you said was, pick a clan, and as long as you know what your stance of your clan is, who cares about the rest of it? Because like, at the end of the day, who actually cares about the rest of it? You know what your stance is, you know what your clan's goals are, what your ambitions are, and so that's where your argument stands. Not necessarily the history of the other clan. Exactly. Unless you wanted to, unless you were a character that would research it to use it as like it to your advantage or as a disadvantage for the other team, right? Yeah. Unless you're a keener who does all of their homework like way way ahead of time. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> all right. That being said, a couple questions in terms of when it comes to the history of Rokugan. Okay. Which parts of the of the setting do you use the most when you're telling your stories? I started running my games. Uh, towards the end of the Age of Exploration, which is something that we didn't really cover. Yeah. Uh, during Kitsuki Iweko's reign as Iweko I, there is a Gaijin force that comes from a foreign land, and it's basically like animal folk mm-hmm. known as the Destroyers, and they ravage the Empire for a short period of time. She makes what is known as the first dark deal with Daigotsu Mm -hmm. in order to make the spider a clan and to help defeat um, the destroyer herself. Mm -hmm. After which, after this war is all won, the Empress decides, hey, this land exists, our empire is destroyed and 
without resources, we're going to go to this foreign land and we're going to colonize it. Mm -hmm. Now, depending on your feelings on colonization and depending on your feelings of, you know, that sort of imperial expansion, your, your mileage may vary. In terms of my feelings towards the canon, I think that it makes a lot of sense because when they arrive, it's a wasteland. A lot of the folks who are there had been beaten up pretty badly by this demon lord that was existing there. And when they meet a lot of the Rokugani samurai, they create, for one of the first times in Rokugani history, a positive relationship between Gaijin and samurai. Mm-hmm. Or, and, and Rokugani. So it shows a shift in mentality, both from the Empire, and it shows them willing to do their best to help people on the outside. Obviously to their own gain as well, but that is where I started running my game, because it was when I started playing the the trading card game as well. Yeah. Right? A lot of the cards that I played were from uh, Emperor Edition, Mm -hmm. which was, of course, in the Age of Exploration. Yeah. And we did talk in the previous episode about how sometimes decisions within the canon were decided at tournaments of the card game. Correct. Was that only in the previous history up to, like, a certain edition, or is that... When did that stop? Uh, it... I believe all of the canon in... I want to say all of the editions was influenced by things in the card game yeah. and in the like live roleplay events. Uh, in terms of the current roleplaying game, I don't believe any of it is influenced by the by the living card game, mm-hmm. which is now a dead card game. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, because I was like wondering, like, because um, I, I I kind of said like it would be really fun to play some of this history. Like, yes, you know what the result is going to be, like some for a lot of the history that happens within the past and the other editions, and like some of the like. But I want to play the Mortal Kombat of the siblings deciding who is who is going to be the leader. Oh, like, playing in the Four Winds era. Yeah, man. Yeah, and just like doing something like that for fun and just seeing what like it, it, again, it was not going to change like the long-standing history if you decide to play a game later down the line. But it'd be like a really fun one shot to pull pieces from this history and make it a little like a little campaign that you can do and the fourth edition books uh, specifically imperial histories and imperial histories 2 have settings like that that Mm -hmm. they have come up with where you can play through this and you can try and alter some of those experiences and play through some of those historical beats and play them in a different way which i also find really fascinating Mm -hmm. and is one of the inspirations for the next arc that i will be running yeah um, I just realized that if my players listen to this episode, they're going to realize a little bit more about the Black Scrolls than what they already know. Yeah. Because I used the Black Scrolls in my campaign. Oh, you did? I did. But, like, my issue was, is I, again, I, I built this campaign around not wanting it to be a, a specific clan campaign, but I ended up doing it anyways. Um, but when I decided we had to talk, talk about the Black Scrolls, I started reading about them, and I was like, interesting. Nope, this sounds like a thing that I would like to use. And so I started reading about them, and then my problem was, okay, well, which scrolls would be in which clan at this time because yes they were gifted like they're within the protection of the scorpion open them and then shit popped off and then they were dispersed and for different reasons along the timeline that's correct so a few of them did end up in the phoenix clan which is where i was playing and so what i ended up having to do for my campaign was i had to follow the fucking timeline and be like and i like put all 12 scrolls on a little chart where they started who opened them, what happened to them. And then like a lot of them are like, who knows where they are at this point in time. And I'm just like, okay. Well, (laughs) in order to defeat Fulang the second time, all of them had to be opened. Yes. To render Fulang mortal so that he could be killed. Yeah. So, but yeah, there's just a lot of 
like pieces that I took from that history. But I was like, but there was a piece of advice that you gave me when I was first starting to write for my campaign. And I was like, if the history exists, use the history. And I was like, okay. So I was like, so that was me trying to figure out what that fucking timeline was for these fucking scrolls to learn where they would be. And I, most of them I probably got wrong, but I don't care. You know what? <laughs> In the end, it's about what provides a good experience for your players. Yeah. It's about what provides an interesting experience for your players. None of them are going to be sitting there pouring through hours after hours after page after page of in-depth Rokugani history. They've shown up to do cool samurai stuff. Yeah, that's true. And as long as you are willing to take on, I was going to say burden, but the privilege. <laughs> the honor. <laughs> of experiencing the Rokugani lore yeah. and like the world of Legend of the Five Rings, you're going to pull so many things from so many places, even when you're not looking for it. Yeah. And you're going to stumble across, oh, so these two people got into a fight here, which started this thing that I'm actually looking into. But who is the second person? What was their deal? Oh, they wielded this magic sword. Where did that magic sword come from? And before you knew it, you started trying to write a game about the Phoenix and the Black Scrolls, and you'll end up writing a game about... The Sparrow Clan. Yeah. Being potato farmers. 100%. <laughs> but, like, but at the same time, like, you don't know Dan and Adam. <laughs> like, I mean, you know them now a lot better than you once did. This is true. But um, as soon as I introduced a... I knew as soon as I had introduced a Black Scroll, Dan's character would be, I need to know, what do I know about this? So And so, again, another piece of advice that I've been given by a few different DMs and a few different game masters is along the lines of know enough for the your players that they'll have the information that are required to move the game forward and know enough of what they're going to find interesting. Yeah. Right? Um, and so I knew that I had to know enough about this item if I was going to give it to a player who'd be interested in its history and were going to ask me questions about it. So I had to know enough. And like... <laughs> Another interesting tidbit about Rokugan is that if it's more than 100 to 200 years in the past, mm -hmm. and it's something that the Empire doesn't really want talked about, mm -hmm. there are people within the Imperial bureaucracy who go and edit historical records. Yeah. There are people whose whole job it is, is to make sure that your players will never know what the Black Scrolls are in their lifetime. <laughs> right? So, what, oh, uh, GM, what do I know about this thing? You don't know shit. Yeah. Because the Otomo did their job. <laughs> well, because, because, uh, like, uh, like, we're getting off on a tangent, but when it specifically came to the Black Scrolls, the Isawa had a big problem with the scrolls when they opened them at one point. A whole, whole bunch of corruption occurred. Yes. All of these things happened. But they are also the housing of the largest library in the Empire. Yep. So I'm just like, how much of that information would have been scrubbed? It, it Absolute truth yeah. is what the Phoenix are all about. Exactly. Right? So I'm just like, I can't completely scrub it. Whether like... it's good truth or bad truth, it's all truth. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that being said, would there be anything that you would change about the canon timeline for your own game? Uh, I've, I've done it. Already. What's something you changed? So in, in the canon timeline, eventually, Iweko the first elects that her firstborn son, uh, Iweko Shib no, sorry, Iweko Seiken, who was trained by the lion, will end up being her heir and Iweko the second. I found that so boring. Mm -hmm. The in-canon ruling is that because he was the firstborn son, it is his right, as per Rokugani tradition... And, you know, the law of primogeniture is a thing. So, typically, things go to the firstborn child. Mm -hmm. Incredibly boring. In the CCG, 
there was a whole arc where it was, is it going to be Iweko Seiken or is it going to be Iweko Shibatsu, his spider clan trained brother? Again, boring, because there was a third child, Iweko Miyaka, (laughs) who was completely ignored. She exists in an offshoot game called Love Letter, because there, I mean, the game exists the game outside love of L5R, yeah, yeah. but there is an L5R love letter, and the whole purpose of the game is trying to get Iweko Miyaka to fall in love with you. How do you spell the name? I believe it's M-I-A-K-A. Okay, I was gonna say, our fucking Princess Miyaka in our goddamn campaigns. She was <laughs> truly an Iweko, and you can't tell her that. <laughs> like a mite. <laughs> That's the thing, a mite. So in in my canon, yeah. what I did when we got to that point of the timeline was I made it so that the Empress elected her. Yeah. Uh, Shibatsu ended up becoming one of the leaders of the Spider Clan. Seiken ended up becoming one of the leaders of the Lion Clan. But Iweko Miyaka ended up becoming Iweko II. And that vastly changes the course of history. Yeah. And kind of made it what was your own version of the Empire going forward, basically. Yes. Hmm. Look at you. Yeah, I know. Just empowering and... <laughs> Shifting, shifting blocks and making things, making things happen. That's what I do. Yeah. No, I tried not to change a lot because, again, my campaign only took over the course of three days within a certain period of the timeline. And I was like, I really want to change a whole heck of a lot. But, like, I remember trying to figure out who was of the Elemental Council at that point in time that I was running the campaign. Yeah. And then I remember, you know, having a discussion looking at it and being like, okay, well, this person is probably technically that person, but their apprentice is probably maybe at the point where I am playing might be that person at this point. Yeah. So there's a lot of this maybe might be. So I, in the end, I just kind of picked from the timeline be like, okay, well, you're probably too old. This person is now in charge kind of thing. So I kind of built the council based on the timeline, but also based on like where my timeline was within that timeline. So I'm going to have to uh, steal your notes later because I have a, a big time skip coming up and I'm going to need to be able to know who the elemental council is. So uh, thank you for doing my homework for you. Yeah, it's not Dan. Thank God. Thank the fortune. Sorry, Dan. We make fun of you in this podcast too. You can't escape it. No, he's just that guy. All right. Well, now that we kind of understand the society that our samurai kind of like have grown up in and the history and what built it, um, there's a very specific piece of the history that is what builds what a samurai is. And that's the the code of the samurai, the Bushido. Yes. So we, I don't even think we've touched on this like at all, other than like mentioning it as a whole or as a construct. As like a, a thing that exists in the background. But the reality is, is that it is the foundation of what it means to be a samurai. Yeah. And by the foundation, like we just spoke about how there is the the three sins of a samurai. Fear, desire, and regret. Yes. So, and then the code of the Bushido is courtesy, honesty, sincerity, benevolence, duty, courage, and honor. Yeah. Yeah. The word samurai Mm -hmm. means to serve. You are a servant of the emperor. Mm -hmm. And by proxy, a servant of the empire. In exchange for your service, you are taken care of. You are given resources, you are given housing, you are given wealth far beyond that of peasants. And all you're expected to do in exchange is serve, and serve well. The way that you are expected to serve is by exhibiting these virtues. Courtesy, honesty, sincerity, benevolence, duty, courage, and honor. Mm -hmm. Each of these things being foundational to serving properly, right? So... Courtesy, Ray, is the showing of politeness in one's attitude and behavior towards others. Even our enemies 
deserve respect. If you are not properly courteous to the people around you, how can you be entrusted with having conversations on your Lord's behalf? How can you be entrusted with, you know, hosting parties and doing those sorts of things? Uh, honesty, fairness and straightforwardness of conduct or adherence to the facts. How can you be a proper servant if you cannot properly deliver information in the truest fashion? How can you be trusted if you're not true to your word? Sincerity is the quality of being free from pretense, deceit, or hypocrisy. And my favorite of the virtues. How can you serve properly if you are not honest with your Lord about their behavior, about what they are doing to the people around them? Because you can be objectively honest, but be insincere. Mm -hmm. Benevolence, which is the quality of being well-meaning, or kindness which is a surprisingly underrated one of the Bushido virtues. It is... Don't be a dick. Yeah, don't be a dick. <laughs> you know? It's, it's pretty cut and dry. Yeah. And it's, it's something that extends beyond just members of your own social caste, right? It's something where samurai are expected to be kind to peasants mm -hmm. and are expected to be kind to everyone around them. Yeah. Right? Because, again, it makes you a better servant. Duty, the moral or legal obligation, your responsibility as a samurai... You got to do your job. If you got to be there at 5 a.m., you're going to be there at 5 a.m. Uh, 4.45 or you're late. <laughs> yeah, sorry, 4.45 or you're late. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, it all it all comes back to that idea of service and serving well. Mm -hmm. um, courage, strength in the face of pain or grief, the ability to do something that frightens you. How can you serve your Lord if you're too afraid to serve your Lord? Yeah, or too afraid to do the hard things, you know? Yes. Like, yeah. Like, if you look at many of the virtues, there is a little bit of each of them in each of them. There is courage in doing your duty, but it is your duty to be courageous. There is a courtesy in being benevolent, but it is benevolent to be courteous, and so on and so forth. All of the virtues sort of feed each other. Yeah. And strangely enough, it is a big part of the L5R culture. Like, not just in uh, the role-playing game, but as people who play L5R, you sit there and you analyze all of these virtues and you figure out which ones are the most important to you and which ones really resonate with the character that you want to play. And you end up doing a bit of introspection about which ones are most important to you as a person mm -hmm. and which ones you value highly. Yeah. And what I've noticed with a couple of the people that I've played with is that they start to embody the virtues that they find most important. Mm -hmm. subconsciously because they're thinking about them all the time one of what my dearest friends is a crane through and through well two of my dearest friends are cranes lots of cranes in your life <laughs> and they're both wonderfully courteous people phenomenal hosts and um excellent ears they again they live and breathe this part of the mythos mm -hmm. effortlessly effortlessly and did so long before they even knew that they were crane but knowing that there was a a name and a color and an identity associated with their behavior brought it out of them more, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Could be wrong. <laughs> the the last of the Bushido virtues is honor, uh, which is the adherence to what is right or to a conventional standard of conduct. Mm -hmm. I had this explained to me phenomenally, and it's what I've sort of come to believe honor is, at least in, in terms of this. Honor is the standard that you hold all of the other virtues to. Honor is how heavily you adhere to being courteous, being honest, being sincere, being benevolent, being dutiful, being brave. Mm -hmm. If you're a person of low to no honor, maybe you don't care how courteous you are. Maybe you don't 
care too much about being honest. Yeah. Maybe you don't give a fuck about if you're doing your duty. But if you were a person of rigid and unwavering honor, you do all of these things. Yeah. Sometimes to your own detriment. Typically to your own detriment. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good way of wording it in the sense where, because in the game, there is a mechanic where honor is a score. Yes. And you lose and gain honor based on things that occur. And, like, choices that you make as a character and things like that. And so, like, it's it's when you're standing there as a samurai trying to make a decision about how courteous am I going to be in this situation, how benevolent am I going to be in this situation, that's what's going to affect your honor yes. in my mind. So, and I remember you actually gave me this advice when it came to, like, deciding whether you have an honor loss or, like, a, I mean, there's a chart for it or whatever. But at the end of the day, when you're role-playing with someone, it's look at the Bushido code. Are they going against or for their very specific chosen or what they want to feel is their main Bushido code that they follow? Yeah. Right? So, if they have been regularly courteous and all of a sudden they are not that's when they're taking into question their honor. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. No, I agree with that. It's a good way of wording it. Yeah. This is something that you make a lot of your players do at the very beginning in Session Zero. Yes. And not even in Session Zero. It's their first time playing L5R. If, <laughs> if, if I've never... If, if, if I'm speaking to you about L5R for the first time and, you know, I do I geek out a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, oh, it's this thing that I love. How weird. How crazy. Oh, right. Um... <laughs> And you show interest, the first thing that I will do is I will ask you to pick from the Bushido virtues and to put them in order. Yeah. And from the three that are the most important to you, that typically defines which clan I think you would enjoy playing. And then from there, it's like, hey, you know, here's a brief description of each of the clans. Of, of the three that you have chosen, which one appeals to you the most? And then we go from there. Yeah. Because technically, again, that is something that, like, you did with me. That's something you've done with all the players that, you know, we've played with. Yep. Um, to kind of pick what fits them. That doesn't mean that's the character you're going to play. It doesn't mean that's the clan you're going to play in. But it's it's an introspection of yourself as a person sometimes. Yep. Right? But is that written in the canon in, in the core book somewhere that they are attached to a very specific part of the Bushido Code if you are in a clan? Yes and no. Okay. So the virtues that we have gone over here are just the virtues of Bushido. Of being a samurai. Of being a samurai. Yeah. In the, in like the mythos and the surrounding parts of the game, each of the clans has a tenet mm-hmm. that aligns with them. So the the lion have honor. Yeah. The crane have courtesy. Mm-hmm. The phoenix have honesty. The dragon have sincerity. The crab have duty. Mm-hmm. The unicorn have benevolence. Yeah. The mantis have courage. The scorpion have loyalty, which is a parallel of duty, mm-hmm. but they are both looked at differently. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, the spider, who are the ninth clan, mm-hmm. have strength as their virtue. They Again, the spider are a very interesting case, and uh, we will cover them in a later episode. That's very true. Um, but no, I, I remember doing this when we first sat down to make my first character a long time ago, and yeah. I ended up in Dragon. Of course. Because of sincerity. But like... I remember us having a conversation recently that, like, I, I would fit Crane, like, to a degree. Yep. You're, you're a remarkably courteous person. You're an excellent host. You are somebody who will extend every every courtesy to the people who are in your presence. It's like, oh, what, you thirsty? You hungry? Ah, oh, you want to sit down? You need a back rub? I'm not going to do it, but, you know, somebody else might. <laughs> you're that kind of person, right? Yeah. No, I found that very interesting because, like, I did when I started my campaign, um, I gave them only, from the very beginning, they were only allowed to choose from three clans. Yeah. Right? 
Um, and we didn't really talk a lot about the other clans and so on and so forth. But it was very strange how, even though I pigeonholed them into only being able to pick from those very specific clans, how many Phoenix I realized I had in my life. <laughs> oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. How, uh, how strange. It was, it was very interesting. That you attract honest people. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, no, it was a, and it was a wild ride, like, like learning about them and like figuring out that even though they didn't quite know or have been in this world for very long and not been samurai for a very long time, um, adhered to those virtues quite well and then accepted the consequences if they did not. Yeah. And that's an important thing to do when playing L5R is not to get upset when you are punished for going against what you know you should be doing, right? In uh, in other games, normally there's this sort of gray area where, oh, well, I'm going to take a risk and maybe the risk is going to pay off. In L5R, I'm going to take a risk and I know that the consequences are going to be severe. Yeah. But I do it with my eyes wide open. I do it knowing full well that I am accepting the consequences of what I am about to do mm -hmm. because this virtue ranks more highly than this virtue. Yeah. Because <clears throat> this virtue requires priority in this situation mm -hmm. for my character. Yeah, and it was amazing watching my players go through that process to see which virtue stacked on top of the other one, which was more important to them in the whole nine yards. There was a point in my campaign where um, one of my players ended up in a situation where they had to touch and manipulate a dead body. Yep, that's a no-no. That's a no-no. But they decided that taking the weaponry was necessary and doing these things was necessary for that situation. However, it was precursed with I will take the consequence and when done, I will return and do the right thing afterwards. But like, it was a very long conversation at the table. Yeah, the internet can't see my <laughs> face right now, but okay, let's, 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 let's rank this. Um, Break it down. Touching a dead body, big no-no. Stealing yeah. someone's weapon, big no-no. <laughs> Stealing the weapon from a dead body, super Word big no-no. No. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> the... <laughs> the the rulebook as written has a chart yes. that determines how big of an honor loss you take based on your rank of honor. I don't like it because it is not scaled appropriately. I use a separate uh, metric, which was given to me by another GM, and it is minor, major, and then either blasphemous or righteous. Yeah. So if it's a loss, it is a blasphemous loss. If it is a gain, it is a righteous gain. Yeah. Um, that... Whew, I'm not going to get into the math, but somebody would was, be hemorrhaging on her. It was a bad day. And, like, I think it was it was Adam's character, by the way. Oh, God. <laughs> Adam. But, like, at the table, it was a conversation of these are the things that you are doing that are incorrect. And, like, because we talked about what it's like to work with players that have never played in this land before, making the decisions that they're making. How do you handle that at the table? Yeah. Right? And a lot of that does come down to, okay, these are the decisions you have made. These are the decisions that will cause you a loss to your honor because you're going against X, Y, Z. Are you sure this is something that you want to do? Because you as a samurai would know yep. this. And, you know, sometimes they would make, they, they, and sometimes they would just go through the D&D &D pattern of like, nope, I'm going to do it and I'll, I'll face the consequences. But like Adam knew the consequence. And I, I think it was like, I think I ended up giving him like a full almost 1.5 point honor loss for that whole situation. Almost two ranks. Yep. That's, that's accurate. It was, it was a lot, but I was just like, I was, but he was like, in this moment, I need to do this. And I'm like, yep. I, I, I gave you what was going to happen to your character. And you did it with your eyes wide like open. open. <laughs> <Yeah>. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right, 
What's yours? Sincerity? Dragon? Yeah. That's your, okay. <laughs> hands, hands down. I, I used to waffle a little bit about which of the virtues was the most important to me, but I think at the core of who and what I am, I can't lie about how I feel. Yeah. You know, I can do my best and try to put on a good face, but eventually it bleeds out. Mm-hmm. And it comes out in the way that I speak. It comes out in my facial features. It comes out in my body language. I can... You know, put on a good mask for a little while, but eventually it all falls apart. It's a short-lived mask, just to confirm with you. Hard on my sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's where I waffle because sincerity is important to me in virtues of the people that I am around. And it is one that I, I, I hold true to as well. Like, I do like being true to myself, and I don't like living a life that is not true to who I want to be. And I, I feel like I've expressed that many times in different levels of my life. But, like, when I realized that courtesy was one of them, I was like, no. But again, when you talked about how it bleeds into each other, my sincerity allows me to be courteous because I inherently want to make you feel that I sincerely want you to be comfortable and happy in my space. Yeah. Right? So that's how it bleeds into itself. Yeah. Over and over again. Over and over again. (laughs) We've talked a lot about the history of Rokugan, how it was developed, about the Bushido Code and, you know, how samurais lived their lives. So now we're going to get into delve into a little bit of the day-to-day life of a samurai and what it looks like from, you know, womb to tomb, right? So we're going to look at, like, the birth and schooling of a samurai, uh, a life of service, you know, like how marriages work, that kind of thing. And, like, how does... What's the life of a samurai, Roman? Well, it starts, like most life starts, at birth. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, Samurai births and birthing customs vary a little bit from clan to clan, but we don't really celebrate the individual birthday. We celebrate the birth and the death of a year. Mm-hmm. So regardless of when you are born in the year, your birthday is celebrated on that one day of the year. Everybody yeah. has effectively the same birthday. <laughs> you were born in this year. Yeah. 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 Um, and throughout most of your youth, like for the first couple of years, you're just allowed to be a kid. Go play games. Go socialize. Go have fun. Spend time with your contemporaries. There comes a point where your schooling begins, but it begins at home. And it is a lot of your parents ensuring that you are literate, that you are aware of the appropriate bits of etiquette. We don't stab meat with our chopsticks. We uh, don't spit on things. We use our appropriate honorifics when we're speaking to people. Those sorts of things are drilled and drilled and drilled at home until you reach the age of approximately 10, 11, where you begin your schooling in your clan's specific school. Uh, So let's say you've shown aptitude for being a pretty smart person. You would quite likely be sent off to become a courtier. Let's say you are shown to be bigger, stronger, a little bit faster. You know, you're a jock. They would send you off to be a bushi. Let's say that one of the Shugenja who were there to give you blessings after your birth noticed that you have an aptitude for the kami. You would then be sent to train in your clan's Shugenja school. Mm -hmm. Your life is chosen for you, largely. Yes. You train for four or so years, learning all the secrets of your school, until you eventually come up to your graduation test slash coming-of-age ceremony known as your Genpuku. Yeah. (laughs) If you pass... You're then an adult. Yeah. Full-blown, do not pass go. You're an adult at like 14. Get the fuck out of my house, you're done. <laughs> and you're you're given a job and you're given expectations and you're expected to serve the way that everybody else serves. Yeah. This goes on for, if you're lucky, the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. During which you will serve your lord in the manner befitting of your chunk of the samurai social caste and you will get married because it is your responsibility as a member of your family and a member of your clan to have children 
who will one day serve the Empire and therefore become samurai. Mm -hmm. Marriages are arranged. Getting to marry for love is not something that happens very often in the Empire. Almost period. <laughs> and like it's something that we mess around with a little bit because yeah. I'm a romantic and I love the idea of you know my players getting to marry for love. But in the rules as written, it's your lord decides, hey, we're going to marry you to this other family or into this clan or out of our clan for whatever reason. Yeah. Right? Samurai marriages are religious ceremonies as much as they are like celebrations of a union. But again, they're mostly political arrangements. Yep. Uh, after your marriage, again, you're expected to have more children. Wash, rinse, repeat. You train them. You continue to serve until you either die in service or you reach retirement, mm -hmm. which is when you are no longer able to serve. Let's say you reach retirement. You either become a sensei and you teach other samurai, or you retire and become a monk and you spend the rest of your days in a monastery meditating, contemplating, trying to find enlightenment. Yeah. Again, as a service to the empire. Let's say you die. Your body is prayed over, you're mourned for multiple days, and then you are cremated because we don't like having dead bodies around. That can be mm -hmm. resurrected by bad men. Yeah. We, we had one bad experience and we said, no more dead bodies. <laughs> but death isn't the end yeah. in Rokugan. Uh, a part of the funeral rites and service is actually a Shugenji will come and they will summon your spirit back so that you can say your goodbyes to all of your family. And then you are returned to the karmic wheel. Mm -hmm. If you were a great samurai and you fulfilled whatever your destiny was and you served well, when you enter the you know, celestial heavens, you are then judged and admitted to your clan's personal chunk of the heavens, where you will then look over other samurai and offer them guidance if you're prayed to. If you didn't do a good job, if you were a miserable fuck-up, <laughs> they send you back. Yeah. Sometimes, even if you weren't a miserable fuck-up, sometimes if you just, like, didn't hit the mark, they send you back. And if Try again. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're lucky, you come back as a person. If you're not lucky, you come back as a mealworm, or you come back as a badger, yeah. and you work your way back up through the celestial hierarchy from being absolutely not a human to being a low-class human being, so either a peasant or an Edda. The Edda are a kind of like the garbage class of human. So, well, un unfortunately, that is the case, right? Yeah. Like, they are uh, garbage collectors. They deal with dead bodies. They uh, shovel refuse. They are uh, the, the lowest of uh, the Rokugani social structure. Then there are peasants, who you know can be farmers or uh, merchants or they work as servants for samurai and then there are samurai and then above that is uh, the imperials. Yeah. But your goal as a samurai is to serve well and to die well. It's beautiful. It's kind of sad. Actually. It is very sad. It is very sad. <laughs> the the life of a samurai is about denying yourself the fact that you're human. Yeah. Over and over and over again so that you can be good to the people that employ you. But the reality is, and something that I try to encourage my players, is that you're still human. Yeah. Right? As try as we may in our daily lives to ignore the fact that we're people and that we have fears and that we have desires and that we have regrets. All of those things are a part of being human. Mm -hmm. And your responsibility as a samurai is not to exist without those things but to serve in spite of those things. And that's what makes the role-playing game work. Yeah. Is not playing this, you know, this robot that doesn't feel those things, but to feel those things and do well in spite of them. Or sometimes to fail 
in yeah. doing so. Yeah, like for instance, I remember uh, in the last game that we played, it was a short one shot and my character was being used as like a prisoner of war to try and get into infiltrate this fortress or whatever. And then she was arrowed to death in front of her brother. Yeah. And in order for him to honorously maintain the mission that his bosses put him on, he could not emotionally respond to the fact that his sister was just murdered in front of him. Yeah. And that's the decision you have to make. Like, I found that a lot. If that happened in a D&D table where these things and the Bushido Code and all these things did not exist, that character who played, like, my, my brother would have just ran forward and tried to kill everybody. 100%. Would have an emotional response. Yeah. But no. He stone-faced it, played through it, and then mourned her after. And it created all of these interesting role-playing situations where he had to navigate, oh, well, you know, my sister died for this, I have to keep pushing on, or oh no, like, how can I continue to do this when the one person in my life that I truly trusted and cared about is now not here anymore? Like, it creates turmoil, and it creates interesting internal and external dialogue for your character yeah no it was and like those are the kinds of moments that you come up like to your point those are the kinds of moments you come up to in l5r it's just like okay i'm faced with this very shitty situation but i need to be able to hold my shit together and get through this situation and if i have to cry about it i will cry about it later like there was one moment where i remember in our we played a game with marinade in the marinade lands or whatever yes, yes but yes. my character was still raised as a rokugani samurai yeah and there was a moment where she couldn't hold it and cried in front of someone and the first thing she said out loud was you tell fucking no one <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, even away from the culture that tells you that you're not allowed to cry and that you're not allowed to show emotion, she stood fast to how she was raised. We don't cry in front of people. Yeah. We don't show people that we can't keep it together. Yeah, because we are strong samurai, and we do this for not ourselves, but others. Yeah. Right? <sighs> but yeah. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> So some questions around that. So which part of the samurai life do you find interesting to roleplay in? Ooh, I I have a soft spot for like just after the Genpuku. Yeah. Right? The the up and coming. It's never my first done this day. Before. My it's, first job. This is my first day. <laughs> that's where a lot of the tension is. Yeah. I find that mechanically the game starts to, it doesn't really wake up until around second rank and it starts to fall off after third. So the sweet spot is from like two and three, where your 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 roles and the skills that you have and the experience that you have to play with isn't too massive, mm -hmm. and you're playing somebody who is competent but not infallible. Yeah, rank one is interesting because you suck at all but two things. Yeah, most of the time, right? This is I am still trying to figure out who I want to be and how I can be who I am supposed to be. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no i would agree i like playing in like the it's a, i like being a player when i'm playing a character it's it's their first time out yeah like i like that aspect because you are you do have a period of i could be explorative as a player and play the stupid card every once in a while like this is my first time out with a sword you know what i mean like, I remember there was a time when I was, I just became someone's, like, bushy protector. Yeah. And I ran away and did something else. And he's like, uh, you're supposed to stay with me. And I'm just like, sorry, it's my first day. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> But uh, but I did find that I found that it was good to try and navigate with players who it wasn't their first time out. Yeah. They're supposed to be knowledgeable and understanding and, you know, and be able to 
show that they are courteous and kind and know how to act in public, right? So, but I do find that if you're going to play with a new table, like playing the younger age group is definitely a little bit easier to run with. Yeah, especially if they've never played L5R before. Yeah. Because you can typically lean into you as a member of Rokugan yeah. will have all of your etiquette. You'll understand all the social cues unless you choose to play somebody who doesn't. But for some of the more nuanced parts of the setting, mm-hmm. yeah, like you've never been to a court before on your own. It's okay for you to like ask these questions and to do these things. And bow at the wrong angle, you know? Like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, have you ever had a samurai's marriage or genpuku go poorly? Oh, yeah. Hundreds of times. Uh, like, I don't know if I'm in the hundreds yet, but... Every like, marriage is fucked. <laughs> one of my favorite things in the game is just make, like, if you take bi- anything other than blissful betrothal, your wedding has some sort of a hitch. Your your marriage not being chosen by you is either to, like, the cousin's friend that you grew up disliking, and now he's, like, kind of hot, but still a dickhead. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, person that your mother chose for you is actually just her bingo friend's daughter and like she loathes you and is bigger and stronger and tougher than you are. <laughs> and you have to navigate that, right? Like there's there's always a hitch. Yeah. The, the pairings are never explicitly bad. You know, it's it's not obvious that there is something wrong with the pairing, but it's obvious once you are behind closed doors, that there is a mismatch and that you have to work through that. You either have to learn to like this person and get this person to like you, or both of you accept that it's never going to work and that you are just in this as a job. Yeah, it's my day. It's just my life. It's my nine to five. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is my 24, 365. <laughs> Marriage. <laughs> that's when you start volunteer to go to war. You know, it's just like, oh shit, there's a... Yep, there's a you become there's a, war. a war hero because you didn't want to be home with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, she became a war hero because she didn't want to be home with you. That's fair. Fair enough. I accept. No, and I so I not have not had a lot of successful romances in Rokugan because I'm a, a fan of the tragedy. Yeah, you're a Black Widow. <sighs> yeah, I don't think. <clears throat> I think a grand total of one of the characters that one of your characters has fallen in love with has survived. Yeah. Well, yes. And, like, I'm talking about the life and death of a samurai and, like, the honor and, like, the courtesy and XYZ behind, like, you know, an honorable death. Um, I remember it was me and another player at the table decided that we were going to be in a relationship, but we had two of the characters that were not supposed to ever be in a relationship trying to be in a relationship at the table. Yep. So it was very interesting and awkward to do, but we ended up writing a very lovely love story. And, like, the first thing he did when the campaign ended was he sent me their death story. Like, how they died together. And I was like, this is probably the most beautiful thing I've ever read. And it was, and like, it did take apart all of their virtues. Because, like, my character is very much, no, we, we live and we die as samurai. Like, we can't live forever. And his character was, had the ability to extend my life. And he's, and my character was like, I'm not doing that. We die as mortals. Like, that's, that's what we are. (laughs) 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 But no, it's like, yeah, no, I, but no, every, every person I've ever loved in Elphibar has died. So, uh, if you ever play on one of my tables, your, your love will die. (laughs) Sorry, Mieka. (laughs) Your Tagashi will die. Big oops. (laughs) 
So that's all for today's episode in this series of on Legend of the Five Rings. Make sure to like and comment with which tenant of Bushido is your most important to you. And don't forget to follow or subscribe because the next episode will focus on the various roles your character can fulfill in this sadness simulator of the samurai. I'm going to say it in different orders every fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> for more info and details, please check the show notes. When you're resolved from the beginning, you will not be perplexed. This understanding extends to everything. Be resolved, young samurai, and tell the world what you have witnessed here today. <laughs> <laughs>